Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And we're back to the Notion podcast. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm very good, Paul. And yourself? Very good. We always start with a sentence, don't we? I know. Exactly the same <laughs> words every single time. <laughs> so who do we have today with us? Oh, well, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Roberge to uh, the podcast series. Mark is a, is a fascinating individual. He's a managing director of, uh, of an early stage fund called Stage 2 Capital. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. He authored the best-selling book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, which is how I came to know him. And then prior to that, he was the Chief Revenue Officer at HubSpot. I think he was there 2007 to 2016, grew revenues from zero to close to 100 million, and the sales function from one person, which I think was presumably himself, to 450. And I think, Mark, I'm right in saying you met the founder of HubSpot while you were doing your MBA at, at, at MIT. Is that correct? Yeah, we sat next to each other in a, kind of a, one of those startup classes where everyone shows up with an idea and his idea was HubSpot and I had a, a different idea that didn't do as well. Uh, but that's how we met. And I think Mark at the time had, I don't think it's probably unreasonable to say, you know, very little in the way of kind of really formal or even at scale kind of experience in sales leadership. But what's really interesting from the conversations I've had with Mark in the past is how he, he applied his kind of engineering mind to creating a rigorous and data-driven approach to building and managing a sales function. And then he then went on to distill the lessons he learned in his book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. So I'm fascinated by that journey. It is very, very unusual for somebody to be able to do that. You know, When you look at many of the most successful unicorns in the industry, I'd say this is probably an anomaly. But nevertheless, it's fascinating. So Mark, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much. Thanks, guys. It's like to be here. Where are you calling us from? I'm in Boston. Oh, you know, so We're nice. just finishing up this semester at Harvard. The weather's miserable, but um, we're... Uh, we live in London, you know. I know. Know, this. I know. I'm not talking to Californians or, or anyone from Barcelona or anything. So, <laughs> Yeah. It, anything, Mark, you wanted to add in terms of the background and the story? Do you want to put a little bit of that intro into your own words? Oh, it's quite generous, Stephen. You know, I think since leaving HubSpot four or five years ago and starting to teach it at HBS, one of the great things about it is it does allow me to keep scratching that entrepreneurial itch. So, you know, each year I've taken the time to intimately get to know at least 20 startups and understand the go-to-market function and engaged as an investor, advisor, whatever it might be, to see if I can't help unblock their go-to-market function. So it's been fun the last, you know, four or five years to see lots and lots of data points along those lines and start to pattern recognize some of the formulas that may extend beyond my experience at HubSpot. So just want to mention that because I may draw on some of those experiences and insights as, as we go through the questions. Sure. And I very much hope we'll be able to find a, a joint investment opportunity in the next few years as well. For sure. It'd be fantastic to get you working with some of our companies and some of the ones we've invested in already or some of the ones that we will be investing in over the next um, four or five years. So let's jump into kind of the first question. And what I want to do is really kind of set the scene around the the fundamental kind of formulas that you devised around, I believe, sales hiring, sales training, sales management, and demand generation. Maybe just kind of elaborate on those, but but also why those four and why they're so 
critical? Yeah, I mean, it was really just, I guess, the vision of a machine that I wanted to try to engineer, I suppose. You know, I mean, I think I knew that the ideal was predictable, scalable revenue growth. And it's kind of funny that for the entrepreneurs out there, when you get to the go-to-market strategy side of your pitch deck, lead with those four words, predictable, scalable revenue growth. Like every VC looks at those four words and they, they, they're they writing notes like, this is great. I love this. This is exactly what I want. Even though there's no substance. start nodding and smiling. And yeah, leaving. exactly. Right. right. So there's there's no substance to it, but that's that's what they want. So that, that was my goal. And you know, you can see with an engineer, predictable, scalable, that And I thought about it and I said, okay, if I can hire the same successful, you know, prototype of rep each time and train them to have the same skills as they enter the funnel and provide them with the same quality and quantity of leads, which is sort of my inputs to my machine and hold them accountable through data-driven coaching to running the same process, I can start to envision this machine that enables predictable, scalable revenue growth. And so, it, you know, those four instilled many aspects of it, right? I mean, I think there's some compensation, there's some pricing, there's some management coaching that isn't fully, and maybe some org structure design that does isn't encapsulated by that. But for the most part, it was those four things that I obsessed over to try to create that predictability. And was that from the beginning or did it take a while to kind of really learn and distill that? No, it was pretty much from the beginning. I mean, you know, the first year was basically, you know, Darmesh and and Brian and like Volpe was involved on on the marketing side and then myself doing the selling part time and then eventually full time. So in the beginning it was just belly belly sales. I mean I think I brought on the first fifty or hundred customers, right? So it's like that was a different story, right? But once Halligan was like, all right, now we got to scale. Your job is not selling anymore. Your job is hiring a rep every month and building this up. So at that point. That's where that that vision really came to life. And then, I mean, you went through that, what we call a startup, grow up and scale up. And in fact, you went way beyond that. I mean, you know, the startup phase is like, you know, 5 million revenues and 50 people and kind of grow up phase, you know, where you're building the kind of the real repeatable machinery is maybe taking you to 5 to 25 million, let's say, and then 25 million onwards. I'm interested in how how those practice areas and those those formulas evolved what changed yeah. what stayed the same as you grew because it's very hard isn't it for people sometimes to grow as fast as a company when you're growing as fast as as you did yeah it's funny because now in my experiences as an academic and also having seen so many of these different plays outside of hubspot my answer to that's very different than my unique experience at hubspot because i think i messed a lot of it up i could have gotten to that answer faster so first off there's some interesting research from years ago by this guy named Larry Greiner, who essentially looked at a lot of these and saw that the optimal managerial strategy that you use in phase one actually leads to the first leadership crisis. And it requires the move to phase two. And he goes through like eight different phases. But just as an example, phase one, it's all like product market fit, agile, you know, like you need you need jacks of all trades. You don't know what you want. You want to move fast. You're in a room. You know, you're making a little bit of money, but you've got all this equity. And that starts to work. You figure it out. And that style leads to its first crisis. It's like, no one's leading this. No one's making decisions. So now we have to put in place some sort of like, you know, a leader to make calls, right? And so it's kind of interesting. And I certainly felt that. And his whole point is, if you want to ride the wave, not only do you have to adapt your managerial culture, but you have to adapt yourself as a leader to go through this journey, right? 
So that was number one. Number two is um, I've actually started to see a very consistent pattern in what I've codified to help sales leaders and CEOs navigate through this startup to grow up journey. And I really see three sequential patterns, product market fit, go to market fit, growth and moat. Okay. So product market fit, I define a little bit differently than general market, which is consistent customer value creation. And so when I look at a company, what I ask is, well, first off, I say, what's your retention, logo and revenue? I'm looking for over 100% revenue retention, over 80% logo retention. But you know that tells me if they have it or not, but it's usually a lagging indicator. What I look at more is like you know, 60 days into a customer's lifespan, what percent of them use your product every week? You know, or like, what is it that we can measure that strongly correlate with long-term value and long-term retention of this customer? If you can do that consistently, if you can sign up a dozen, two dozen customers in a month, and 80% of them are hitting that in 60 days, that's when I believe you have product market fit. And you, when you think about that initial goal, which I think most entrepreneurs and investors don't think about early, they think about triple revenue, triple revenue, and they ignore that customer value creation. And it's just, I, I think it's a huge mistake and it leads to a lot of graveyards for startups. And so when you think about that goal, that puts a lot of emphasis on customer onboarding. It puts a lot of emphasis on selling the right customers with the right expectations. Your comp plan, if you have one, should probably be connected to the customer success, not the contract. You know, pricing probably doesn't matter that much at that point. Just get them committed. Like we're not solving for profitability. And as you as the founder and CEO, if you find yourself flying around to all your early customers, literally like trying to get your product set up and used, you're on the right track, right? So like that sets a big tone for go-to-market in that stage. Now, if you check that box, you're like, yeah, got it. I sign up two dozen customers every month, 60 days later, 80% of them use the product you know, every week or whatever your lead indicator is. Then you move to the next stage, which is, can you do that profitably? That's go-to-market fit, right? So what matters then? Well, scalable demand gen, being able to bring on reps, potentially have an SDR and account executive function. Your pricing matters a ton at this point. Pricing's really going to drive your unit economics. Comp plan matters a ton at this point. You got to get that right. Okay. So, so let's work on that. And now if I see I'm, I'm getting 80% of my customers to customer success and I'm doing it with a payback period of less than 12 months or an LTV to CAC of greater than three, bam, we're ready to go. So now let's move to growth and moat. And growth and moat is not like what most startups do at this stage. It's like, hey, we're ready. Let's, we just raised a $10 million round. I literally talked to one in San Francisco that we invested in. And they raised a big round. They had five reps. They had scaled to like, I don't know, a couple million dollars. They hired 15 reps in January. 15 reps. <laughs> That's what they do. I'm like, growth and moat is not like you hired five reps over a year. You're not ready to hire 15 reps in one month. You have no idea how to feed them with demand. You have no idea how to manage them. You have no idea as a company how to absorb the customers they bring on if they're even successful. Growth is about a pace, right? So it's like, okay, we're moving into growth and moat. Let's try hiring one rep a month or one rep every other month. Let's do that for six months and let's watch our numbers. Let's watch our customer success number. Let's watch our, our unit economics number. If we're still good, let's increase the pace. If we're two, not- Two a month. Let's- Three yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's increase it, watch it for six months until it breaks. And when it breaks, let's work on it. So anyway, that's the, you know, sorry for the long windedness, but Steven, I'm just right. seeing that as a as a pattern across many. And it's a framework that I've have been able to help a lot of startups to 
to accelerate the revenue with that with that yeah. framework in mind. I think that that sequence is is so powerful. You know, what's interesting is to observe. You were able, despite what Griner said. Yeah. You know, you, you needed to transform yourself. Yes. And and that is really unusual. You know, that people can do that all the way through kind of four hundred and fifty people. But I'm also interested in how. Well, how did you do that for yourself? And then, yeah, sure. How many of the the salespeople and and leaders in the team you employed were actually able to transform themselves through that period? At HubSpot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite a few actually. So for me, the way I did it. Well, first off, I I was lucky in the sense that naturally I have what I'd probably call career ADD, right? Like I do a job for six months, I get the hang of it, and I get bored. And so <laughs> in a lot of careers, that's like terrible. But in this context, it's perfect, <laughs> right? The fact that you have to like redefine yourself. It was nice that I had that alignment. Personally, I, despite all the busyness and all the stuff you have to do in taking on the startup journey, I allocated 5% of my week in personal development. And I, I use that in a lot of different ways from reading books to reading blogs to taking heads of sales out to coffee to, you know, all that type of stuff. I think that really helped me to continue to progress. I think the most helpful things was in the first year, I probably interviewed like 30 heads of sales over coffee just to figure out what the heck this thing was because I'd never sat in that seat before. And that helped me to see the, you know, some of the best practices, some of the common techniques that people were using. You know, that experience, not to sound like cocky, but like it gave me a lot of confidence and anxiety at the same time. Because at the time, this is 2006, 2007, we were really, I mean, scaling up inside sales teams fed by leads was like unheard of. Like it just wasn't how people did it. It was like how you did sales was you, you did, you know, hired a big field outside sales team and sold big deals, right? So we were kind of doing this new thing. And, and at the time, like a lot of the heads of sales were like, you know, people that didn't even really go to college, right? They just had grown up in sales, street smarts, athletes, you know, that type of stuff. And, and while they were great salespeople, they never had sort of like strategic training before. And so I just found a lot of like lack of substance to questions like, how do you scale? You know what I mean? And like, how do you align comp plan with strategy, right? So I did find like half a dozen or so VPs of sales that I really connected with and wanted to spend more time with. They happened to be people that like had a similar, you know, get background like me. You know, they were kind of newer to it, building these more modern things. So I organized a quarterly dinner with those folks. And we did that for like eight years. We would show up to the dinner, pick a nice place, have a cocktail, and basically just go around the table. What's the biggest problem you're going through right now? And then we'd spend 20 minutes on each person's problem. And that was, I learned a lot through that eight years of dinners because these were people that I had kind of self-screened as folks that I wanted to continue to learn from. You know, in every dinner, not only could I get feedback on my problem, but I usually had someone else's problem or was about to have someone else's problem. So we started to see some really nice patterns there. The only other thing is I found an amazing mentor a couple of years in, John McMahon, who was actually Halligan's boss at um, PTC. He had scaled PTC from 100 million to a billion in revenue. So he'd seen some tremendous scale before. And HubSpot got to the size where it was really hard for me to see six months out what issues I was going to have. And yet, as you scale, seeing that far out is so critical because you need to start putting in place those strategies now. So John was exceptional to help me pattern recognize as we started to scale. And um, I got together with him four hours a month to help me go through that journey. So I think those were the two big ones, the dinner and the, the mentor. 
that helped me to continually adapt as it was needed. And coming from within, a desire to constantly learn and transform. Sure, taking that uh, as a priority for sure. Take, yeah. Taking that as a given, if you like. But if you then go back to those three stages, and, and you, you talked about the kind of the agility and the kind of almost pioneering kind of spirit that has to be there at the beginning. We're just, we're trying to obsess about, are we solving the most important problem for the most important customers and delivering the most value we possibly can? And can I distill that? That's very different from, okay, now we figured out how to do that. We figured out that niche, we need to do that repeatedly, but profitably. There's quite different behavioral attributes. And I just wonder how much change there was in your sales organizations as you went through those, those three stages. Well, I have to tell you that like when I said those three stages, I wish I had them because <laughs> we screwed it up. We screwed up royally. And I think like <laughs> it was just because we were doing something new. There's no way we could have seen it. And like we were one of the first ones to, in fact, like when we started the HubSpot CRM five years later, we were always envious of our, our buddy Drew Houston at Dropbox, who we went to MIT with as well, who basically like was one of the early pioneers of the freemium model. And so we immediately went to that when we did the HubSpot CRM. So I wish I had followed the you know product market fit, go to market fit, growth and moat when I scaled HubSpot. I did do the growth and moat pacing thing, but I completely screwed up the product market fit. We had put in a hunting plan and got to eight reps and went from 100 to 1,000 customers in eight months. We went from a million to 3 million in eight months. And our churn spiked to 8% a month. It's not a business. Right? So it's like... That's not just a leaky bucket. bucket. (laughs) It's got a hole. A year later, you have no customers left. So I wish I had that. We didn't follow it at HubSpot. And and a lot of it was reactive and trying to fix it. And and it, it partially inspired my desire to seek out like a framework like that. And and even when I invest today, Stephen, right? Like that's, well, I think a lot of investors first ask and look for over 100, 200% revenue growth. My first question is, what's your revenue churn and logo churn? And my second question is, how do you measure product value creation in the first 60 days? And I'd much rather invest in someone who is an A plus there and a B plus in revenue growth yeah. than someone who's an A plus in revenue growth and a B plus in revenue retention. It's like just my skill set. You know, usually fixing revenue retention is, is something to do with the product. And usually if you have awesome revenue retention and mediocre growth, I have a pretty good chance at helping you fix that. And even if we can't, I can still sell the company. Because imagine being Salesforce or Oracle and looking at a company and you see a company who can't scale their sales team, but they have exceptional revenue retention. Salesforce is like, I have a sales team. Like, don't worry about that. But if I see a company that doesn't have any revenue retention, it's like, this is a crap product. You know what I mean? So I just much prefer that foundation. I can see that. And I can see that in, in, in many of the examples of, of where we invest too. So, you know, it is interesting that you're developing, you know, theories and ideas, but they're based squarely on practice and, and they're, they're based on some painful lessons learned. Yes. Um, and, uh, and that's extremely powerful. And I'm interested in how does the, the formulas change and, and the kind of that, the, a product market fit, go to market fit, growth and mode change based upon customer size and, and go to market. So yeah, sure. Premium to SME to enterprise, <clears throat> for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of another like pet rock that I think is worth stating is within all these boxes, like who you hire, how you comp them, there is no universal correct answer, right? And like another huge cause of startup graveyards is what I call the cut and paste, right? It's like, okay, you got to a 500,000, you got to a million in revenue. You got your series A. We just gave you $5 million. 
Now go find that rock star VP of sales that's been there, done that. Like, let's just picture the unicorn. Go get that unicorn VP of sales and bring them in. That causes a lot of graveyards because what is that VP of sales does? That VP of sales just had huge success in this unicorn and they come into your company and they hire the same type of sales rep. They run the same sales playbook. They run the same demand generation strategy. They comp them in the same way. And it's completely not the right fit for your business, right? Those decisions need to be connected to your outer context. And your outer context is mostly what you sell. It's complexity, price, whatever, and who you sell to, right? Like what role, like what sophistication, where in the world it differs from Asia to Europe to the Americas. And so we just have to appreciate that context. So, you know, you, you specifically asked Stephen around company size or like deal size. I mean, that's like a huge issue. Like if I'm dealing with someone who on one end is I'm paying them 80,000 a year to close 10 deals a month and the total revenue generation is going to be half a million versus another person that's going to close like a deal a quarter where each deal is like, you know, 300 to 500,000 each. You know, it's completely different hire, completely different ramp time, completely different comp plan, completely different demand gen strategy. You know, the, the bigger ones are tougher early because it's all about how fast you can learn. You're never going to get it right out of the gate. And when you're selling big deals with long sales cycles, it just takes a lot more time. So usually you have to raise more capital. And oftentimes what I encourage people to do is if you have a, a value proposition that is, you think is actually a fit for both big and medium-sized companies, start with the medium ones. Like start with as l- downstream as possible, largely because you're just going to learn faster. You know, those smaller companies will make faster decisions. You'll get their attention faster. You'll be able to get them set up faster and then learn, learn, learn. And then after a year or two, like move upstream, right? Versus it's harder to move down. So anyway, a lot of it does matter by context. And I think one of those big contexts, Stephen, is what you point out is how expensive deals you're selling. I think you, you put it really well. It's about it's about your personal context. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's one of the kind of slightly, the slight dangers, isn't it? Of the kind of received wisdom of this is yes. how you build a sales team. This is, this is how you, you grow. This is how you create predictability is that the rules of the past are really important, but, but your, your situation is unique. Yeah, there's just like, there's things that I think are abstract, which I think apply across the board. That framework I talked about, about product market, go to market, growth and moat, like regardless of context, it applies. You know, hiring and hiring, doing demand gen, coaching and training through a data-driven context. Like that doesn't go away if you're selling bigger deals. Okay, so that's just, there's frameworks you can use across the board. But, you know, who specifically you hire? Like, I like people who are coachable and curious. That's unique to my context, right? But, you know, to use data to define the criteria that you're looking for, measure the criteria, and then run correlations to hires that you've made who've been successful or failed to start getting good at that math, that's just something generic that you'll want to do in all contexts. Moving on to, I think, probably one kind of big area, which is we're starting to see more and more of the kind of SaaS models that are moving beyond subscription to platform, platform plus marketplace and transactions, platform plus marketplace plus third-party apps. And you know what? There are great examples of that. What obviously is happening is that more and more of the value is being pushed further out past the initial sales process into success post-customer sales. I wonder how, how does your thinking about 
creating predictable scalable revenue growth changed as new SaaS models have emerged? Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like the product architecture model is way way further along than the go-to-market. Like, I feel like we have so much more catching up to do. But when you talk to someone who's kind of on, maybe advanced on, across the board, and we talk about this one advancement of moving, moving more toward platform, moving more toward like expansion revenue as the big focus, I think I'll give you two examples that I see as relatively unique and based on that context which with critical implications of the go-to-market decisions. The two examples are in pricing and compensation. And so I feel like when people do something like that and expand to the platform, they start to like expand their price, right? Like, like we should be able to charge more because we're delivering so much more value. I think that's great. But I think in today's go-to-market context, don't look at that as a, a new customer opportunity, but instead as a you know existing customer expansion. And it's very, very critical because when you do come out and you start winning a category, unless you've built like a permanent, like almost monopolistic moat, I'd be very wary about raising prices that my new customers will see. Because as you increase the prices that opening customers will need to bear, it significantly increases friction and it opens up disruption risk. You know, I think Jeff Bezos is quoted as your margin is my opportunity, right? And so I would much rather like keep your legacy mindset for your new customers, like keep that opening friction and opening price really low and look at this, like all this new product development you're doing and movement to a platform as you prove yourself with a company and build a customer and build up your reputation, expand them to it. And that will be a beautiful sort of like modern approach that keeps disruptors away, keeps friction really low and maximizes lifetime value in that investment. That's the pricing piece. The correlating compensation piece is we've always said in sales compensation, pay more for first revenue. Like I says, I've been doing it for 50 years, like pay more for first revenue. I get my first half a million dollars from account. I pay a lot for that. If I expand them to another half million, I don't pay as much. It's just like, it's not, it's easier to do. That conflicts with the pricing and go-to-market motion strategy, right? Because I had, I had reps and we, we did this with the HubSpot CRM. They would have an account and we, we had this beautiful freemium model. They were using it in one department. There was like a hundred reps there, but there were only like five that were using it at this company. So the customer was like, hey, listen, I'm ready. I'm ready to sign up for these 10 reps right now. And my rep was like, no, no, no. You got you to gotta sign up for all 200 reps right now. Like that's the old school mentality. Like that's how I get paid. Yeah. That behavior is completely conflicting with everything else we've laid out in terms of the buyer preferences and the adoption of our product. So I changed the plan to say for my reps, guess what? I'm going to pay you 20% more for expansion revenue than for first revenue. And my reps were like laughing. They're like, dude, you're such an idiot. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to got this account. They have like 100 potential seats. I'm only going to sign up two this quarter. And I'm going to get the other 98 next quarter. And I was like, thank you. That's exactly <laughs> what I want. And then because I want you to do another 100 the quarter off. Exactly. Because it's like, I'm like, if you sign up those two, first off, you sign up those two, it's going to happen so fast. Like low friction. That's what the yeah. buyer wants. You're going to set good expectations to make sure those first two go really well because the other 98 are on the line and they're not going to expand to their 98 unless it's going really well. And so if they expand, I got no churn risk. And if they don't, I got no churn risk because it's only two seats. And so just an example in your question, Stephen, with the platform. 
significant implications on legacy pricing and comp plans. And it does feel like those lag product mm-hmm. sophistication and product strategies are advancing very, very fast. Exactly. Go to market advancing relatively fast, but the the pricing and compensation elements, I think that's that's a really interesting area, a very big lag. And the amount of time people spend thinking about pricing is minimal. And yet one of the biggest levers they can have on speed and, and long-term growth. Yeah. I mean, my take there is like, don't spend a lot of time on it in the product market fit time. I think people spend too much time there. Just like, listen, just one off it with each customer. Who cares? Like just get them free is not good because they're not committed, but like it doesn't need to be priced for profitability. Just like give them some beta pricing, get them in there, prove customer success. Really important go to market and a big lever, as you say, to huge impact on LTV to CAC, payback period, profitability, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Mark, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, of course, is that all of the profits you generate from selling the book, the Sales Acceleration Formula, goes to nonprofit. Maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So thanks for the support in the book. It all goes to uh, build.org, a nonprofit I found like five or 10 years ago. It really struck with me. In the US, I don't think they've got to Europe yet, but they need to. But in the US, they've They've identified at this point that the 12 biggest cities in the country that have, you know, poorer areas and high schools that don't perform too well. And they bring an entrepreneurship curriculum to those high schools. And they get like 50 to 100 of these students who have not been dealt the life deck that we have, who usually wouldn't have graduated from high school. And they put them through this entrepreneurship curriculum for four years. And 99% of those kids graduate high school, 85% go to college. Wow. So all the proceeds go there. You know, clearly entrepreneurship has been a good thing in my life. And I thought that Build's uh, mission in applying that to these high school environments was great. So thank you for that support. Four years, that's a, a great initiative. To be able to keep it going for that long and have that kind of impact is extraordinary. For sure. Once again, thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And, and Paul, thank you for your help as ever. As always, thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.